Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. We're with Jesus. Jesus is with us. He can make it happen. And by the way, they are going to do exactly what he told them to do. Feed the hungry multitudes. You give them something to eat, but they're not expected to work a miracle to make that happen. And I want to encourage you that, that God isn't expecting you to work miracles to make things happen. He just wants you to trust Him and obey Him and then watch Him do His part. In today's broadcast, we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, The Ministry of Multiplication. We are in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 13, and we will be considering Jesus feeding 5,000, Peter confessing Jesus is the Christ, and as Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection, he instructs his disciples to take up their own crosses and follow him. So let's listen in. The disciples, as we often have, survey the situation. They conclude there's nothing we can do about it. Jesus tells them to do the impossible. You give them something to eat. And they begin to say, well, we've kind of surveyed what we have. We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. Now, one of the other gospel writers says that would be about three quarters of a year's wages. If they had that kind of money, they'd still have to go. And then how do you get the food there and distribute it to everyone? So they're just saying, this is like pretty daunting, Lord. There were about 5,000 men, and he says to his disciples, verse 14, make them sit down in groups of 50. They did so and made them all sit down. Now, I'm reminded here, and I want you to be reminded, that our job is this simple. We trust the Lord, and we demonstrate that trust by obeying the Lord. Put another way, we have faith in the Lord, and we demonstrate our faith by obeying the Lord. That's our part. What's his part? He does all the miracles. He does all the big stuff. He tells them to feed the people. There's no way they can, but what they can do is say, okay, Jesus wants everyone to sit down. So everybody sits down. Well, now what? Now Jesus has to come through. And again and again, he puts them in positions where they can't make it happen so that they'll realize, hey, we're with Jesus. Jesus is with us. He can make it happen. And by the way, they are going to do exactly what he told them to do feed the hungry multitudes. You give them something to eat, but they're not expected to work a miracle to make that happen. And I want to encourage you that, that God isn't expecting you to work miracles to make things happen. He just wants you to trust him and obey him and then watch him do his part. Well, he took the five loaves, the two fish, looking up to heaven, verse 16, he blessed and broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled and the 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. The key word as far as their personal experience is filled. It's actually glutted. It, it, you experience it when you go to a smorgy. You rarely leave saying, oh, I'm glad I ate just enough. You're like, I can't believe I ate that much. And, and that's really this group, see? They don't know where the next meal's coming from and they weren't even sure this one was gonna happen. So everyone ate all they could, all they needed and more. And there were 12 baskets left over. What's our Lord teaching the disciples? That he can provide for the hungry multitudes, that he can provide for them, and that they just need to look to him and trust in him and then just obey him. Well, another demonstration of power. And it's also a wonderful picture for us of how God prepares us to be used by him. The application for us 
individually and corporately is this. In order for God to use me, to use you, to use us, and certainly he's chosen us to use us. He blesses us and he wants us to know we are a blessed people. But his intention is that others would be blessed because they know us and we know him. They connect with us, they get to see him. Well, here's the picture. He blessed, he broke, and he gave. I've been in a lot of prayer meetings and I've heard, Lord, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless my family, bless our fellowship, bless our country. Nothing wrong with praying that, by the way, unless what we mean by blessing is, could I get a new car and a bigger house? Could I make more money? And I mean, all those things might be good for you or not. But if what we consider blessings and what we're praying for in blessings is just stuff selfishly we would want, even if we weren't Christians, I'm wondering if that's really something he's going to say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm way into that. The, the, the reality is we're already blessed. So when we're praying for blessing, we really should be asking, Lord, use me to bless others in your name. If you are a believer in Jesus, most of you claim you are. I take you at your word. Only God knows, of course. Only God can see our hearts. But if you claim to be a believer, you need to know you are exceedingly blessed. You've been chosen. You've been washed. You've been forgiven. You've been anointed and empowered. There's a call on your life, a place in the body of Christ. And now you get to go represent Jesus. What do you need to do that? Well, there are a few things. We'll see it as we get to the end of this study. But, but one thing that we've already touched on is, is we need to trust him and we need to obey him. And, and so he blesses us when we realize without him, we can do nothing. They realize that. Hey, there's no way they can meet the need. But I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. That's the testimony of Paul. And that's the experience of these disciples. They can be used by God to distribute what he has blessed and what he's broken. Well, again, been in a lot of prayer meetings where people pray, bless me, bless me. I've rarely heard anybody pray, break me, break me. Why? Well, let's admit it. The breaking process is a painful process. It's not something we're looking forward to or hoping will happen. But I'd suggest to you that God does his best work through broken people. Why? Because we're going into a world that's broken, a world full of broken people and, and our ability to connect with them, to have empathy for them and, and to actually show love to them directly related to the brokenness that we've experienced as a result of the things that have happened in our lives. You know, the Bible says that we're to comfort one another with the comfort we've received in the time of our affliction or trial. So he blessed them. And that's what he's doing for us. He is blessing us. And then he broke them and that's what he's doing for us. He is breaking us. But then it says he gave them to the disciples. And, and so when I'm broken, by the way, it's easy for me to pray, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, I can't do it. I can't make it happen. I can't even make myself work, much less make this work. So I, I come to him completely broken and, and he's like, just trust me, just obey me, just watch and see what I'm going to do. And so blessed, broken, and then blessing others in his name. One other reminder before we press on. Everyone there was fed. Everyone there was satisfied. Everyone there was glutted. It wasn't those who really grasped who he was or had decided to follow him. People were there for all sorts of different reasons with their own agendas. He just fed them all. Why? That's what God's like. 
His rain falls on the just and the unjust. His, his sun shines on the, the appreciative and the unappreciative. And, and so in any case, everyone was fed. Everyone was satisfied. But those who served, they saw a miracle and they participated in a miracle. And I want to suggest nothing has changed when it comes to this. If you want to know what God can do, you can read the scripture. If you want to see him doing it today, you have to put yourself in a place where you're beyond what you can do, where you're not only serving, but you're serving beyond your strength or your capacity or your talents. And it's what Franklin Graham, well, he calls it, he got it from someone else, but he calls it God room. It's that space between what I can do and what only God can do. And, and I put my hands this far, I should have, you know, it's like, it's so big, there's no way for me to get my arms out to demonstrate it. The reality is, what I can do, it's so narrow, so limited, but what God can do is unlimited. And so the God room is when I get to that place where I realize, okay, I need to trust him. And sometimes I only need to trust them just, just a little bit. But, but my trust is in the one who's trustworthy. Sometimes I need to have great trust in him, but my trust again is in the one worthy of that trust. Well, as we press on into verse 18, it happened as he was alone praying, his disciples joined him and he asked them saying, who do the crowd say that I am? Now we've already touched on the answers because of the things that we read earlier in the chapter. But, but get this, they answered and said, well, some say John the Baptist. Why would anyone besides Herod think such a foolish thing? And those who were listening to Herod, well, Jesus' message was the same message. John came preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. After Jesus' baptism, Jesus comes out of the wilderness preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his message, you see. And while some said Elijah, we already touched on why they would think that. Elijah was prophesied to come. Elijah will be coming. Others said one of the old prophets has risen again. Well, Elijah, because Jesus was working all these miracles. Prophets, because Jesus was saying, you've heard it has been said, but I say unto you. There was actual revelation from the lips of Jesus. Even his enemies said, no one ever spoke as this man. And so he then ask life's most important question. We come to it again and again and again. He says, but who do you say that I am? Peter answers for the group and he says, the Christ of God. Now, today as you interact and you do, if you'll ask people this simple question, who do you believe Jesus is? People are gonna say, a great teacher, he's the mighty reformer, he's a miracle worker. If you head over toward the health food stores, they're gonna say ascended master or uh, you know, uh, one of many, Christ. And I'm not picking on the health food stores. I go there, I love the food, I love the people, but I'm just saying they're actually my people, BC. And so uh, that's who I was hanging with, you know? And, and so uh, the whole thing is, um, the opinions concerning Jesus are the same today that they were in that day. There are a few things that have changed. I don't think anyone in the first century ever thought that Jesus might be the spirit brother of Lucifer. But do you know there's a major cult today, one of the largest cults that teaches Jesus is actually the spirit brother of Lucifer. Let me tell you why that's not only absurd, but, but um, well, what other word is necessary for it? It's, it, it's abominable. Um, 
Jesus is the creator of all things. According to Colossians, all things were made by him and for him and in him all things consist. Is Lucifer a part of all things? Absolutely. That means Jesus created Lucifer. Now, he didn't create him fallen. He didn't create him sinful. That's another story all in of itself. If you want to check it out, you can go to the Old Testament and, and uh, look at it. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 will explain how Satan became Satan, how Lucifer fell. And, but, but here's the point. Jesus is the creator of all things. He is not a created being. Another major cult today teaches that he is Michael the archangel. And I'm thinking again, how can you be the creator of all the angels and be one of the angels? Well, you can't be and Jesus isn't. But here's the ultimate issue. Your answer to the question, who is Jesus? Who is he really? That will determine your eternal destiny. Because what you believe about Jesus will determine how you behave toward him. If you believe he's a great miracle worker, you may come to him and pray, Lord, you know, touch me, heal me, free me. If you believe he's a great teacher, well, you may study his words. And by the way, you don't have to be a Christian to benefit from the teaching of Jesus. No, you can read what he says. Long before I gave my life to the Lord, I read passages and I read the Bible, as many people do consider themselves Christians because they have one and they're not something else. And, uh, you know, I read, hey, you've got to forgive. And I'm like, yeah, that actually makes sense. I'd, I'd already seen what unforgiveness did in the lives of others. So I purposed to be a person who'd be forgiving. I found it a little difficult to actually do it, but I did affirm that it was a good idea. Now, even as a Christian, I have to rely on him for the power to forgive some. But my point is this. If you just believe he's a good teacher, and I know this isn't most of you, it may not be any of you, but I guarantee this is people you know. It may be some of you, but we all know people who think Jesus is this or he's that or he's one of many. He's a Christ or a savior or an ascended master or he's a teacher or he's a miracle worker. He may be some of those things. He's certainly not others of those things, but he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And in one of the other gospel accounts, Jesus affirms Peter and he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. He affirms Peter. He points to the father, glorifying him. And then he says, and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Upon what rock? The declaration of who he is. So we ask people, who do you say Jesus is? And we respect that they may be confused about that. And we just let them answer and share their opinions. And then we share, well, can I share with you who I found Jesus to be? Oh, I used to think that too, or I, I've been there. It's easy for me because of how foolish I was before I was a Christian and how long it took me to really catch on. It's easy for me to say, I used to think that same thing. It's mostly true. Every dumb thought that you can have, I had it. And so I have a way to connect to people who are lost and confused. And, but, but you may not be there, but, but you don't have to say what isn't true. You can say, well, I, wouldn't, I never would have believed something like that. But here's what the Bible teaches. And here's what Jesus himself said. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Well, at this point, he strictly warned, verse 21, commanded them to tell no one saying the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. I don't think Jesus could be any clearer. That word must is attached to these four declarations. The word and means he must suffer. He must be rejected and it's rejected by the religious establishment. He must be killed. He must 
be raised the third day. Now, some say, as he shares where he's headed, that, that Jesus suffered so we wouldn't have to suffer. And I'm happy to say that if we're talking about the consequence of sin, that's true. He suffered death so we would never again be separated because of sin from the Father. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so Jesus did suffer for us. But Jesus also taught us that a servant isn't greater than his master. It's enough that a servant be like his master. And you know again and again, and we've touched on it as we've gone through, he teaches us to expect, to embrace suffering and hardship and rejection and persecution. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Well, Jesus is still engaged in the ministry of multiplication. So he shares a couple things required of us today. And then he shares a couple hindrances, things that can keep us from fulfilling the call on our lives. He says, first of all, if anyone desires to come after me, and I'm not going to say, well, how many desire to come after Jesus? I'm going to make an assumption that that is, in fact, your desire, not just to, to follow in his footsteps, but to do all he calls you to do. That's what it means to come after him. Here's what he requires. He says, let him deny himself. We've already touched on this. If you can pray and mean it, not my will, but yours be done. Hey, you're there. Lord, whatever you will. Then he says, take up your cross daily and then we follow him. Take up your cross daily. We have to look at this in the context that they would have understood it or else we can't really understand what it meant to them. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. The cross for them, that was the most horrific, most painful, most torturous possible way to die. The Romans are the ones who crucified, but it was against the law of Rome to crucify a Roman citizen. So this was reserved for the worst of criminals. And, and uh, when you saw someone on a cross, they believed that that would be a deterrent because they would put the charges over you. It would say you're a murderer, you're a rapist, you're a kidnapper, other cop capital crimes in the Roman Empire. And, and so when you saw someone bearing a cross or hanging on a cross, you would assume the worst about them. And in most cases, you'd be right. But he says to them, you're going to need to deny yourself. In other words, stop thinking about you and, and what you feel and you need and you want and you desire and then take up your cross. Don't worry about your reputation because that's going out the window. When you decide to follow me, people are going to perceive you the way they did me. If they hated me, they'll hate you. If they lied about me, they'll lie about you. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And he's saying these are essentials. If we're going to follow him, they're not options. So no reputation. That's our Lord. He chose to be the least and the last. And he's saying, we're going to need to do the same if we're going to follow him. Then he says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now we read this and we ordinarily read into it. Well, he's saying, well, I can't live my own desires and fulfill his. That's true. But he's not just talking about desiring to hang on to my, you know, goals and plans and wants and needs. No, he's actually talking about trying to live my life and hang on to this life. And, and he's saying, if you lose your life for my sake, well, you'll save it. He means that literally. 
at least 10 of these 12 disciples will die as martyrs. That's a fact. Judas is a suicide, so he doesn't count. John, we're not sure that he ever died a martyr, but all the other 10, we know how they died and when they died. And they died as biblical martyrs. And I use that term to say there is a great difference in someone who absolutely believes in what they believe, so much so they're willing to die for what they believe, and in the process, murder all sorts of innocent people. There is a great difference from someone who culture may define as a martyr, but in reality is a mass murderer and a biblical martyr. And the difference should be obvious to you. The, 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 the terrorist kills innocent people as he takes his own life. It's a suicide and a mass murderer. And as he does, well, he does that thinking that he's pleasing God. Is that sincerity, that willingness to lay down his life going to count for anything in the judgment? No, because to be deceived, to be in darkness, to be that wrong about something so important. Hey, they go from darkness here to everlasting darkness, from, from deception here to never being in the presence of the one who made him and loved him and had a better plan for him. A biblical martyr. And that's these disciples. And, and there are many people who are on the mission field today laying down their life for the Lord, not just living for him, but dying for him. A biblical martyr is someone who lays down his own life in order to see other lives saved. Nothing could be further. No distinction could be greater. Though the same word is used to describe both. I, I want to say, I don't think that, that the terrorist should ever be considered a martyr, not in reality. Well, the bottom line is he's telling these disciples and speaking to us as well, saying, hey, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross. You're going you're gonna to have to, well, lay it down if it comes to it, your very life. Well, what profit is it, he goes on to say, and we're near our conclusion, if a man gains the whole world and he himself is destroyed or lost, few have ever attained their goal to dominate the world. Nebuchadnezzar did it in his day. Alexander the Great did it in his day. Very young, conquered the world and sat down and wept because there were no more kingdoms to conquer. But few of us, hey, let's be honest, none of us are ever going to rule over the world. Hey, we're just trying to Take care of our household. I mean, it's, it's enough, isn't it? Trying to rule over yourself and, and live the life God's called you to. But the great, the rich, the powerful, just like us, they live, they die, and they face a judgment. And, and so he's just saying, think big picture. Think eternally. Think spiritually. What profit is it if you had everything in this world? But you yourself were destroyed or lost. And he doesn't mean temporally, he means eternally. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the son of man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and his fathers and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Verse 27 is a bridge connecting the section we've just considered and the section we'll consider next time. For extra credit, you can try to figure out the who and the when of verse 27. But let me just say, when Jesus says, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, hey, make sure that's not you. It's one thing to be in him, forgiven by him. It's another thing to rightly represent him. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. 
For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In our text today, we read about shame, and I want to discuss that with you for a moment. Jesus not only bore the penalty of our sins and died for us, but he also bore the shame that was meant for us. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that for the joy that was set before him, which is you and I, he endured the cross, despising the shame. You see, shame is no small thing, and Jesus willingly took our shame on his shoulders. To truly understand the shame to which I am referring, listen to Daniel 12.2 where it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus bore that very shame for you and I. Yet for many in this world, shame can be a stumbling block. For some, they would seemingly do just about anything for Jesus except endure shame or embarrassment. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.